Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. Tradition would have us believe Joseph and Mary, you know, became stuck in some barn or animal stable as a means of last resort to give birth to the one they knew to be the Son of God. They understood that. The angel revealed that to Mary, and she said, Yes, okay, may it be done unto me, you know, if, if, according to your word. She yielded her body to give birth to the Son of God. Joseph, her betrothed husband, was upset that she was pregnant and was going to put her away privately because he loved her so much he didn't want her to get stoned to death. And the angel revealed to him, no, 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 you know, she didn't fool around on you. This thing is from God and the baby about to be born is the coming Messiah. They knew that. Do you think they would go to a barn, as nasty as that would be, to give birth to the Son of God? No. But there's no evidence found anywhere in Scripture to support that's what happened. Well, Bob, doesn't it say there was no room for them in the inn? Yes. Let's look at that. The Greek word used in Luke 2, 7 for in is kataluma. And it's the same Greek word translated as guest chamber in Mark 14, 14 and Luke 22, 11. A guest chamber or a guest room. So the scripture says there was no room in the kataluma or not in like in a hotel or something like that. But no room for them in the guest room of the family home. Family home? Wait a minute, Brother Bob, what are you talking about? All right, let's go back a little bit. Oh, in First Chronicles 2, 12 through 15, and referenced again in Matthew 1, 5 through 6, Boaz was the great-grandfather of King David, through whose lineage Joseph came up, now married to Mary, wedded to Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, known as the Messiah. Now, Boaz, in his day, owned a threshing floor in Bethlehem, which, by the right of inheritance, as he died, this property was handed down to succeeding generations, 
within the lineage of David. And you can read about that in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Now, Herod may have been the king in Israel, but the Caesar was Emperor Augustus. And Augustus is the one who ordered a census of the entire Roman world, which meant all the people who were under Roman subjection everywhere. They were ordered to return to their place of origin, their hometown. Jesus was, I'm sorry, Joseph was a descendant of the house and lineage of David. So he returned from Nazareth in Galilee to the family home in Bethlehem in Judea. Remember, Bethlehem is the city of David. Mary, betrothed to Joseph, went with him because she was now part of his family. Now, according to the Torah, when a woman had an issue of blood for any reason, menstruation, sickness, disease, giving birth, whatever, any reason, she was ritually unclean for that time and also for seven days after the bleeding stopped. And she remained ceremonially unclean until she was purified by entering a mikvah or a, 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 a elsewhere in the New Testament was referred to as the, the pools, uh, like the pool shalom and uh, siloam and things like that. This was a ritual uh, water immersion, baptism basically, witnessed in the presence of a rabbi. Then she would be declared clean. But while she was ritually unclean, she had to live separate from the rest of the family, so as not to defile the people in the household by her unclean presence, because otherwise they would be ceremonially unclean as well. Therefore, during those times, the woman, during her menstrual period or whatever, would leave the, the main gathering of the home and stay in a nearby room where she would not defile the home where everybody else stayed. And you can see that in Leviticus 15, verse 19 through 23. During childbirth and with the issue of blood loss, the same rule applied to women giving birth, that she would defile the house. So if she were to give birth in a common living area, she'd defile the whole family and make it necessary for all of them to be ceremonially purified, both with a ritual immersion and a sacrifice for their uncleanliness. So to save all that trouble, the woman would leave the home, move into a guest room, and give birth there, you know, away from the family. Now after the cessation of blood and, and waiting the required time for purification, then the woman and the child would perform the necessary rituals of purification and give the ceremony, I'm sorry, the, the sacrifice, and be declared ceremonially clean, then they could return to the household with the rest of the family. Now, this may be hard for people of our generation to understand. You know, it's hard for us to, to wrap our heads around, you know, why would they do something like that? You know, I mean, this is supposed to be a time of rejoicing. Why would they separate? Folks, that's the culture they were brought up in. Remember, you have to interpret the Bible in the culture and in the context in which it was written. And this was the custom of those days. Not our day, but those days. So stop putting modern day 
theory, modern day practices on old Jewish traditions. You have to look at what the traditions were. And that is what the shepherds understood. This is what Joseph and Mary understood. This is what their family understood. This was the culture of that day. Now, with this understanding, the scripture says there was no place for them in the Cataluma. There was no place for them in the guest room. That would be regarded as completely appropriate. But this is still no indication that they would just kick her out to the street and she'd have to roam the streets till somebody had mercy on them and let them sleep with a stable full of animals in their barn. Her family, who would care for her well-being, they would not allow that. That would, I mean, they, you just wouldn't do that. Now, excuse me for a second. Now that we understand that the shepherds knew exactly where they were going to be going, now that we understand that Joseph and Mary were not kicked out to the street and told to fend for themselves, but there was no room for them in the guest room, where would they go? Well, just above the shepherd's field, northeast of modern Bethlehem, is the ruins of ancient Bethlehem Ephrata. Mentioned in Micah 5.2, uh, you know, Ephra is where Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. Uh, it's talked about in Genesis 35.19, Genesis 48.7. They both stay, Rachel was buried at Ephra, which is Bethlehem, Ephrath or Ephrata. This was the ancient name for the area known as Bethlehem. Now, it seems reasonable that Joseph and Mary would have come to their family's ancestral home with the hope. Remember, they understand who the baby is that Mary's carrying. They know this is the designated Messiah. They were told this by the angels. They knew it. Mary, when she went to visit Elizabeth, the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb as soon as Mary walked in the house, and Elizabeth even prophesied that she's carrying the coming Messiah. So, <laughs> when, when Caesar declared, everybody go back to your hometown and register for the taxes with this census, Mary and Joseph thinking, this is great, perfect timing, because now we can go back home and the Messiah will be born in the place where King David was born. They're thinking, man, this is great. Now, archaeologists have become convinced they found the ruins of a structure about 40 yards, not even a football field away, from the ruins of the Magdalene, or the Tower of the Flock. They're saying that this was probably a room designated for people to stay. Could it be? This was one of the guest rooms talked about in the Bible. Well, it'll never become public knowledge. Why? Because of the Roman Catholic Church building you know, the ownership and, and the tourist attraction and the money they generate from the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. But it's been theorized that the owners of the Tower of the Flock 
and the surrounding area lived in the structure that was discovered. So let's just make an assumption right now, based upon what we've talked about so far. Visualize this. Mary and Joseph arrive at the family inheritance. They've come home. They're celebrating, seeing their family again, people they probably haven't seen in a few years, when suddenly Mary begins to go into labor. Now they need to get her out of the family residence before her water breaks so the entire family won't be declared unclean. They need to find a place for Mary to give birth. Normally, they would put a person in this guest room, in this guest chamber. But there are other guests in the house. They were all full. Every room was filled because of the influx of the family coming to register for the census. The neighbor's houses are full. There is no guest rooms available. They don't want to have her give birth in a have her give birth in a filthy barn. I mean, you know, there she's family. But just up the road is a clean area. The birthing room of the tower of the flock. They have everything they need right there to clean and care for a newborn lamb. Those same items are used to clean and care for a newborn baby. It's all right there. It's clean. It's ready. It's only just a short walk up the road. It all makes sense. It doesn't take a leap of, of imagination to envision how Joseph and Mary, coming from a family whose local roots containing the seed of royalty going back centuries, could have found her birthing place in the sacrificial room, birth room, of the temple of God. I mean, it'd be... Only God could arrange all that. Amen? But guess what? This event did not happen in the winter on December 25th. Jonathan Kahn, Jewish rabbi who wrote The Harbinger and, and other books, I like the way... I like reading his books. He, he teaches using what I learned in college is the Socratic method, Socrates, where you present questions in the form of a mystery, then do your investigation, and eventually come up with the answers to the questions. This Messianic rabbi, like I said, known for the harbinger and the mystery of the Shemitah, he's now got a new doc documentary film called, and I'm, uh, forgive me my Hebrew pronunciation, but it's called the Mishkin Clue. In it, he sets out to solve two mysteries. The time of Jesus' birth, was it really on December 25th? And does it really matter? He provides a clue to the answer in his title, the Mishkin Clue. See, the meaning of the Hebrew word Mishkin, well, we'll get into that in a little bit. I mean, he goes on basically like a Indiana Jones-style quest to solve a 2,000-year-old mystery of when Jesus was born. And the first day he rules out as being impossible is December 25th. <gasps> really, Brother Bob? Yeah, really. He just That one just fell by the wayside almost immediately. You see, December is probably the least likely time 
for a Jewish couple from Nazareth to be traveling to Bethlehem for a Roman census while the woman, Mary, was pregnant. Not only would the weather be too cold or rainy and snowy for that time of year for shepherds to be out in the fields, as the gospel said, but the Romans would not have held their census during the winter because it would require families to travel back to the father's hometown to register. And Joseph's family came from Bethlehem. And the travel was just too dangerous to be exposed to the elements. You see, in the church record, it's hard to find any credible reference at all to December 25th as the birth date of Jesus prior to the 4th century of Emperor Constantine. Where did December 25th come from? Well, more than likely, this date was picked to line up with the Roman holiday of Saturnalia, which was celebrated with a pagan sacrifice to Saturn and a public banquet, followed by gift-giving in a carnival-like atmosphere. Does that sound familiar? Another theory is that Jesus may have been born on Hanukkah, the festival of lights, and that would fit nicely with his title being the light of the world. And Hanukkah is held right around the same time. Problem with that, Hanukkah is a newer, more recently implemented holiday, and also it's a minor holiday. And it comes with the same pitfall used to debunk the December 25th day. It's too cold for shepherds to be out in the fields at night looking at the stars. Well, another popular theory is that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, also called the Feast of Booths, which occurs in late September or early October. It depends on the, the lunar cycle in the Hebrew calendar. Proponents of this theory say Jesus was born in a sukkah or a booth, and this temporary shelter was later referred to as a manger. Well, this sounds good, and they're well-meaning, but Khan says it would have been impossible for several reasons. First, Jesus was born in a manger, not a sukkah, not a booth. A manger is a type of feeding trough. Also, the spiritual meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles lines up with the end of times. Amen? The closing of an era. Not the opening or the beginning of an era. in Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, and second coming, it must come in the proper chronological order, and be tied to Jewish holidays. See, tabernacles is all about the closing of the age, the end of the age. So it's the wrong order. Why would you start with something that closes something? Plus, the tabernacle theory puts Mary and Joseph in the wrong place. Jewish families were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. It would have caused a revolt in the Jewish community if they would have been required to travel for a census at the time when they were supposed to be going to Jerusalem. So the Roman government would not have done that because they, they're trying to keep peace throughout all their lands. Not to mention they would have had to travel back home again, you know, even if it was in you know, October, once... The registration took place, the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles was done. 
then they would have had to travel back home and it had been the onset of winter again and the same situations apply. Again, it wouldn't be convenient or comfortable for a pregnant woman to travel during that time. So Khan rules out winter and autumn. So winter and autumn have now been dropped for the birth time of Jesus. That leaves spring and summer. Okay, what about summertime? Well, that would have been difficult during Israel's brutally hot uh, summer, you know, hot and dry summers, but it would have been doable for a woman pregnant with a baby. The only problem with the summertime theory is there's no major Jewish holidays in the summer. So there are no holy days to fulfill, which is how God works. So that eliminates winter, fall, and summer. That just leaves spring. Well, what holidays occur in spring? Well, Passover lines up with Jesus' death. He rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, and he created the church with the infilling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, foretells the Messiah's second coming. Not his first coming, his second coming. Well, there must be a time when Travel is practical and comfortable when the shepherds would be out in the field with their flocks and it'd be safe and, and, you know, for a pregnant woman to travel. Well, that only leaves one option, spring. In Israel, spring is also known as the lambing season. Only in the lambing season do the shepherds watch their flocks by night from the tower of the flock as described in the Gospels, only during the springtime. They are watching to see when a sheep's about to give birth and they bring it into the birthing area of the tower. So this would have been in late March or early April when the shepherds were out watching for the lambs to be born in the fields. So here's a time when the shepherds are out in the fields looking for lambs to be born, to be used for the sacrifices, and who do they find? The Lamb of God. Oh, hallelujah. But that goes back, is there a holy day in the springtime? And there certainly is. It's been downplayed over the years. It is called Nisan 1. The historical first day of the Hebrew calendar. It falls in early April on our modern day calendar that we use today. So the birth, death, resurrection, and second coming of Jesus all fulfill the Jewish holy days in the proper order when you look at them starting with Nisan 1 for his birth. Amen. But it gets even better. <laughs> oh, yes, it does. Not only does Jesus fulfill these feasts, he also fills the theme of the feasts, the purpose for which God the Father instituted the feast. Glory to God. What day is on the Hebrew calendar that would fulfill the theme of Jesus' birth? It's there. It has to be Nisan 1. For Nisan 1, according to God, when he gave the instructions to Moses, represents a new beginning. Nisan 1 is the calendar changer. It breaks every calendar. Every calendar changed based on the birth of Jesus. He went, we went from B.C. to A.D., but God's calendar never changes because God doesn't change. 
So if we look at what they God told Moses, today is the first day of the new year. You will remember it from this day forward. It puts you right back to Nisan 1. But because the early Christian church changed from being Jerusalem-focused, Jerusalem-centric, to being Roman-centric, all of this history is lost to Western believers in Jesus unless you do the study. Besides linking Christ's birth to an existing Roman holiday, Saturnalia, the 25th of December, it's also linked to the Roman New Year just one week later on January 1st. Well, Brother Bob, all that sounds intriguing, but can you provide any evidence that it'd be correct? My answer to that question is yes. You get a clue from the Talmud. Let's look at the Talmud for a second. It contains the ancient biblical interpretations of Jewish rabbis. And according to Talmudic teachings, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to their teachings, were all, they were all born and they all died during the month of Nisan. Isaac, in particular, in the Bible, was a type and shadow of the coming Messiah, the promised one. And God the Father gave the first commandment to Moses to begin everything in Nisan. And there was a reason for that. Nisan 1 is the real Jewish New Year. This is when Moses led the people out of bondage across the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, and they're over on the other end, and, and that's when God appeared to Moses and said, Today is the first day of your new calendar, Nisan 1. That began everything. It's not January 1st, according to the Roman Caesars. It's Nisan 1 should be the new or the real Jewish New Year. It should be the Christian New Year also, but tradition probably won't accept that. It's not Rosh Hashanah. You know, a lot of people think Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. It's not. Nisan 1 is the Jewish New Year. Look at Exodus 12. Verse 1 and 2, and see what it says about the month of Nisan. God said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be for you the first of the months of the year. In fact, the title, First of Months, Rosh Hashim in Hebrew, is reserved in the Torah for the month of Nisan. Amen. So we just established that fact in the Bible. Jonathan Kahn, in his quest for more evidence that Nisan 1 was the birth date of Jesus, moves to the writings of the early Christian church father, Hippolytus of Rome, who lived and taught in the 3rd century, having been martyred in 235 AD. His writings are among the first that have any reference at all to December 25th as the birth of Christ. So there you go. This Jewish Rabbi says this is the birth date of Christ, December 25th. Except there's one problem. You see, one page of his writings still mentions springtime as the proper birth date of Jesus. And some historians, as they examined his writings speculate that his writings were later doctored to reflect the new December 25th date 
with the caveat that one one reference. God always has at least one witness. And somehow, one slip of an earlier document recorded springtime. And somehow that got past the censors who were rewriting it. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.